Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's Subcast. Welcome, everybody, to the new Subcast, and I'm delighted to be joined today uh, by Andrew Doyle. Andrew is a playwright, journalist, uh, political satirist. Uh, he is well known. If you're on Twitter, uh, you should absolutely be following him. Uh, Andrew uh, studied firstly at Aberystwyth, uh, then at York, uh, holds a doctorate in early Renaissance poetry from the University of Oxford, uh, and has just published a really important book uh, that we're going to be talking about today called The New Puritans. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for having me. And I'm just going to get straight into it because I have finished reading your book uh, in about two hours. I just completely devoured it uh, in a couple of hours. And it was such a good read. And one of the reasons I wanted you on the show and I wanted to talk about this book is because something is happening on the left of politics. Uh, I spent a lot of my time well, more than a decade studying the populist right and uh, looking at how populism has been evolving across the West. But it has become increasingly apparent to me over the last few years that actually one of the most significant movements in politics today is is really what's happening on the on the cultural left, on the radical left, on the progressive left. And your book really looks at that head on and dissects it and analyzes it and offers a lot of interesting thoughts about why some of these changes are taking uh, place. But before yes. before we get into that, I just want to ask you um, to begin with, what actually motivated you to write this book in the first place? What led you to actually look at this topic uh, in detail? I think the principal drive behind the book uh, was a sense of general incomprehension as to why so many intelligent, decent people are having their minds curdled uh, by this culture war. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, I opened the book with an anecdote about a, a couple of friends of mine and, and uh, we went out for drinks one night and one of the friends just started shouting at me, calling me a Nazi, all sorts of horrendous things like this. I thought he was joking at first and he wasn't. And I suppose the book is my effort to understand how can it be that we are living in a society where a, an intelligent person who knows my mind, knows that I'm a, an opponent of racism, knows that I, I uh, believe in equality for all and human rights, etc., liberal values, in other words. How is it that if we have a slight point of political disagreement, that is now suddenly interpreted as neo-Nazism? This is complete a bizarre, uh, disproportionate response to what is, after all, just a, a slight disagreement. Why are we in a world where J.K. Rowling, of all people, who for many years was known for being this darling of the left, who's given away so much of her money to good causes, is now routinely smeared as transphobic and hateful, in spite of the fact she's never said anything transphobic or hateful? So um, what I'm interested in is, is how over the past 10, 12 years, we have sort of collectively lost our mind and got sucked into a hysteria. That's the word I would use, and I don't use it lightly. I think that's, so I, I've tried to trace where it's come from, what this ideology is, what we should call it, and how we can, uh, how we can push back against it. Because I think if we don't do that, then the, uh, the ongoing liberal project is dead. And when I read your book, I, I, in my mind, I place it alongside, uh, yeah, I, a number of books in recent years, uh, thinking about the work of Mark Liller in the US, uh, Once and Future Liberal, uh, John McWhorter, uh, Tom Holland, uh, Eric Kaufman, uh, John Hyde. But, but you've really sort of brought everything together in one place, uh, all of the arguments, all of the things that have been put forward, I think in particular since the, the, the election of Trump, um, yes. which, which, and also the vote for Brexit, of course, in the UK, which, which really did, in, in my mind, at least accelerate the sort of transformation of the progressive left in many ways that I'm sure we'll come 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 back to talk about. And you refer to to this group, which you know we, we estimate is about 13% of of Britain as as the New Puritans. 
just unpack that. Why, why do you refer to them as, as the new Puritans? Well, I'm using an analogy there. Uh, one of the reasons I start and I start and close the book with the drawing parallels between what we're experiencing and the Salem witch trials, which was, of course, uh, the, a Puritan community in the late 17th century. Um, but I'm seeing uh, one of the features of this movement, this ideology, which has various sort of interdependent and overlapping strands, all of which are based around the concept of group identity. So uh, although something like critical race theory and queer theory are very different disciplines, they have at their heart a connection in terms of various sort of uh, identity-obsessed um, theories, uh, but also that the, the wellspring of these ideas is from the, the postmodernists of the 1960s. So they're all connected. And I wanted to find a way, a shorthand, to describe these, this very, these very sprawling, but ultimately connected ideologies that we've come to call the woke movement. But, the, but because this is the culture war is largely a battle of language and who gets to define what words mean, you'll find that the culture warriors uh, of the social justice movement will always redefine and problematize any terms that are used to describe them. So they used to describe themselves as woke, and then they problematized that and claimed that it was a snarl word invented by the right. Uh, and some, sometimes people refer to them as social justice activists, but that's problematic, isn't it? Because social justice is ostensibly such a good thing. Uh, you can call them leftist identitarians, but they're not authentically left-wing in any meaningful sense. So we're, we're always in minefields of language. And what I thought is by approaching this movement in terms of a religion as a new religion and breaking it down in that way it makes sense of it to a degree and it's not a slight on religion it's a way in which to comprehend this belief system and to, i'm very very keen to try and make it accessible to people because everyone's confused you know they can see this movement growing in society dominating all of our major institutions sending us backwards really a regressive illiberal divisive movement and yet it's using really progressive sounding phrases to describe itself, phrases like anti-racism and social justice. So everyone's baffled. It also means a lot of decent people would support it, uh, do support it, even though it, it acts against their interests. So accessibility was the key thing. And with the Puritans, you know, the, the phrase Puritan has for a, a long, long time uh, been widely recognized as a colloquial way to describe people of a, uh, a prohibitionist, precisionist and priggish temperament who wish to who 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 are supportive of censorship of the popular arts and culture um, uh, and you know the, it's a common phrase that is understood in that way. Um, however, I, I make pain, so I'm, I'm using it as a shorthand. In other words, I'm trying to make it comprehensible, and also because I draw so many parallels between that particular Puritan community in Salem of of the late 1600s, I see our contemporary cancel culture. As having so much in common with that so it's a shorthand what i'm not doing is saying that the puritans of old uh were the same as the the ideologues we face today i'm absolutely not saying that in fact the puritans of new england were um absolutely uh aware of their own fallibility uh continually in a state of self-doubt they didn't know if they were the elect or the damned um, they knew and they knew of their unworthiness before God. And it's the opposite of what the, of how the Puritans of today behave, because they uh, never doubt their own certainty. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's a very different thing. And I'm very clear about that in the in the book. Um, so I, I, I use it as I suppose, as a as a metaphor uh, in order to make it accessible. And um, does that sort of make sense? I, it, it does. And I but I think the the point about comparing wokeism, progressive leftism whatever your favorite term is to a religion is it also in my mind at least and you you reference this in the book is it captures something else which is firstly an instinctive skepticism if not open hostility toward the scientific method yes toward empirical evidence that that any evidence i found this over the last few years working in academia any evidence that challenges the core claim of the social justice um, uh, woke movement um, is is immediately rebuked, uh, undermined, uh, criticised, torn apart, and usually the researchers who present that evidence, however carefully it's been put together, those researchers are are undermined, attacked, and and, and stigmatised. And I think the, the the point about religion is it sort of captures that 
that sort of superstitious quality that comes with with this movement and it and its hostility to, to really the values of of the enlightenment and the scientific method which have obviously run through postmodernism and and so on that we can come come back and talk about but um but the second thing as well is it, it encaptures this this notion of original sin this idea that well actually if you are at the wrong end of the new moral hierarchy in society if you are um white if you are straight if you are um conservative um if if you are on at the wrong end of the the sort of the new moral hierarchy then um you know you you must seek forgiveness you must atone for your uh, your sin you you must uh, uh preach at the, preach at the altar of 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 this ideology and i think one of the um one of the uh problems of viewing uh the woke left as a kind of normal political ideology is is that it suggests that actually it, it views the world in, in in the same frame as traditional liberalism or or socialism or conservatism and actually it really doesn't i mean it really is a a very sort of almost revolutionary uh creed that that, yeah. that is uh apocalyptic uh that is missionary um that is about building a utopia uh and, and that really has very little interest at all in objective inquiry i mean am i pushing things too far or is no that... i think that i think that's absolutely right and I, th I would add to that i think in addition you know religious people can often do terrible things thinking that they are on the side of the angels and i think that's where the comparison really helps because i'm sure the inquisitors who uh, strapped people to the breaking wheel thought they were doing god's work and thought that they were the good good guys and the utterly dehumanizing vicious and bullying and ferocious behavior that we see from the new puritans today is uh you know often well-intentioned and that's difficult to kind of comprehend you know when they're when they're sending death threats and rape threats and uh, and they're uh, trying to get people fired and destroy and trashing their reputations it's difficult to square that with the uh, moral value uh, a moral worth and yet they a lot of them and i'm not saying all of them because i think bullies are will be attracted to this movement because it gives them a cloak with which to behave in that way and yet call themselves virtuous um, but I would say that a lot of a substantial proportion of them are doing so from good intentions. And that's frightening. So I think that element of the religious comparison is helpful. But also, as you say, the faith based elements. I mean, and and that, you know, this has been described as the counter enlightenment. And I think that's right, because any, as you say, any data that that, that emerges that contradicts the belief system is disregarded or problematized or undermined. Look what happened with the Commission for Race and Ethnic Disparities. That report was trashed and the authors were uh, were smeared as well and um, truth doesn't matter I mean recently among the trans activists there's been a big thing about how well trans activists started the gay rights movement it was black trans women at Stonewall who started the riot that's not true it didn't happen um, they mention Martha P Johnson for instance who was a gay man who never claimed to be trans and wasn't even there but it doesn't matter that you know the, the, the realities and the facts and the truth of it are not important to them because it is a fundamentally faith-based movement uh, that is impervious to reason and and this is why people call it the counter enlightenment because reason if in of, of itself debate in of itself is problematized and and reframed as a simply a means of perpetuating privilege so yeah within that context i think the comparison with religion is 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 really useful and also if you if you look at a couple of examples from recent you know recent history take take the government report on racial disparities which you mentioned so you know there you have you know what some people considered and i would put myself in this camp as a it was a challenging but pretty you know well-researched report um that drew on you know new empirical evidence from established credible university university professors at manchester and elsewhere mm. and essentially really took on this claim that that Britain is institutionally uh, racist and said, you know, absolutely problems in society as there are in every Western democracy. But actually, if you look at a lot of areas of our national life, for example, you know, educational attainment in primary school, secondary school, um, aspects of the healthcare system, if you look at social mobility, um, if you look at uh, representation in in some, not all, but some institutions, actually the story um, of uh, 
uh, you know, race relations in the UK actually is is remarkably positive, that things have been moving in the right direction and often very quickly um, uh, over the last few years. Now, when Tony Sewell headed up that report, um, I, I was then stunned to see my old university, the University of Nottingham, uh, withdraw its offer of an honorary doctorate to Tony because, and they were quite explicit in the press release, because of the political controversy that had been caused by the uh, by the report on racial disparities at the same time as the university were giving honorary degrees to senior members of the Chinese Communist Party, um, seemingly had no issue at all with human rights abuses in China, had no issue at all with commitment to democratic norms. All of that stuff is fine. And there is a there is a selection effect that is continually on display uh, within this this ideology, but there's also, I think, and 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 I sort of push back on you a little bit, but it's not just that 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 um, the Puritans are hostile to evidence that challenges them. It's it, it's also they will just sometimes completely ignore any evidence or any voices that challenge their ideological belief system. Thomas. Sowell once said, you know, first they attack you and then they ignore you. And I, I think that essentially is also what you see, that when there are, you know, remarkably positive things happening in society, I mean, take the conservative leadership election race, not everybody will be a conservative supporter at all on this podcast, but here you've got lots of minority representation, a very diverse field. Uh, I think that's really important. I think it's really interesting. I think it tells us something about where Br British society is. Uh, but, but actually, for others, you know, this was just sort of so challenging to the belief system that they either criticized it or completely ignored it and said, actually, this, you know, we're just not going to engage with that. And so there's a sort of instinctive skepticism of, of objective truth that's really at the heart of this. Um, well, you saw that with the conservative race as well. You know, I've seen a number of people online talking about how, you know, oh, clearly the Tories are very nervous that they might have a brown man as prime minister. Well, clearly not, because most of the candidates were from ethnic minority backgrounds. So you know, it's it's not sustainable, but but they're so wedded to their perception that Tories are evil and racist that even when <laughs> most of the candidates are, are are not white, they have to find a way to maintain that illusion that is so important to them. Yeah, I mean, I think no, I think you're exact exactly right that uh, I think it's part a lot of it is because if they were to acknowledge the way in which the research shows us that we are living in one of the most tolerant societies that has ever lived and things are just getting better. If they were to acknowledge that, it would fatally undermine their own project. You know, I mean, the early writings on critical race theory by the likes of Richard Delgado make it absolutely explicit uh, that theirs is an anti-liberal movement. It is against liberalism. And if they start acknowledging that uh, since the uh, civil rights movements in the 1960s, that the, the ongoing liberal project has had made incredible strides forward, then it undermines them. This is why the likes of Robin DiAngelo, whose work is very much based on a lot considerably on critical race theory, or at least influenced by it, she will say that actually we are living in the most oppressive time of all. Uh, that, that she even says in, in her book White Fragility, she compares today to the Jim Crow era and intimates strongly that today is worse. And what she's saying is it's because racist systems have uh, sort of been sublimated, have kind of uh, seeped into the culture and hidden themselves. And therefore, they are harder to fight. At least Jim Crow is explicit. That's basically her argument. And so, and and she claims that the likes of her and those who are qualified in 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 things such as whiteness studies are uniquely qualified to detect these uh, latent power structures in society, which is very convenient uh, for her, of course, because she gets paid a lot of money to do so. So I mean, yeah, five thousand dollars. I it's insane the amount of money she's getting paid. But but um. So, yeah, I think that's, I, you know, I, I say in the book that I think the closest cinema, synonym I can think of for woke is anti-liberal. And I think, therefore, there is, there is too much at stake for them to acknowledge truth. And that's also, I suppose, why they're waging a war on truth, why even the very notion of reality and even scientific inquiry, you know, I even saw today a tweet come out from the Scientific American uh, now claiming that uh, the idea that sex is binary is a myth that we've long got over, <laughs> you know, which is, uh, it's, it's, it's very sad. It's sad to see, I mean, you mentioned the attack on Tony Saul, and it's sad to see higher education so infected 
with activists who are not interested in the truth, given that the the uh, that higher education uh, academia is about the production of truth and the production of knowledge, and it's failing in that in that role now. Well, I was glad to see you you draw you know one of the things you do well in the book and um and i'm not just saying this because i'm sort of instinctively receptive to your arguments but you you are careful to include the reference uh include references to the research to the underlying evidence base and you point to a number of studies that have shown how higher education has really gone through a remarkable transformation over the last 20 or 30 years uh, yeah. we've, we've written about that on on the Substack. we wrote about that a couple of weeks ago um in the uk for example you know the ratio between uh left-wing academics and right-wing academics in the 1960s was about three to one today it's about eight to one um it's not just about left and right uh, there are also um similar ratios when you look at um you know for example the the the, the presence of um, you know, gender critical uh, feminist scholars have been largely completely marginalized or harassed as we as we saw with the case of Kathleen Stock, very powerfully, uh, very disturbing uh, case yeah. actually uh, for me personally, given that you know, I'm a big fan of Kathleen's work and I uh, I have many friends at Sussex University and I was quite shocked actually that the that, that university let it, let it go that far. Mm. Um, but then also, to hear from so many academic colleagues on social media that, you know, this is all a myth. This is all yeah. the kind of, you know, right wing culture war that is being generated by people who are clearly pushing an agenda. Yet you can look at, you know, Noah Carl, uh, Jordan Peterson, Kathleen Stock, Joe Phoenix, Neil Finn. I could go on and on and on. And the empirical evidence that has emerged over the last five years tells a completely consistent and clear story, which is that yes. we do have a real challenge on university campuses, which ironically are supposed to be the most focused on objective evidence, on research, yet at the yes. same time are completely dismissive of evidence that's, that is pointing to this problem. That's particularly scary to me because, you know, I rely on deferring to expertise where I have none. It's, it's really important to me that I can say, you know, I can say I don't know enough about this topic so I will defer to the judgment of those who have spent their life studying it. But if those people themselves are ideologically captured and will not give me the correct answer, then where, where does that leave us? I find that really, I find that really troubling. Uh, you know, I find it troubling that reputable medical journals are talking about sex being a spectrum when I know from my, the, the GCSE and biology that I barely scraped that that's not true. And I shouldn't know more about this subject than them. That, that's really a bad situation to be in. So the, this legitimation crisis, and it, it extends beyond academia, of course, it's also the media and it's also politics and it's, and it's pretty much everywhere. And that's, that's what makes this harder. If it was just a bunch of a activists online with their anime avatars making these ridiculous claims, then we could safely ignore it. But it's not, it's, it's, this is a movement that is being propagated by the elites. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to draw the comparisons with the hysteria of Salem because it would never have happened had the ministers and the magistrates not gone along with the girls' hysteria and, and the, the, the girls' testimonies. So that's where we are in history, where we, are, we have a, uh, an ideology that would otherwise wither and die because it is so incoherent, internally incoherent and self-defeating. Uh, it, 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 it cannot sustain scrutiny. And it would die were it not for key figures in all of our major political, cultural, educational, artistic institutions and politicians and the civil service propping it up. And that's what's worried, worrying me. I think if you if you look at the universities as well, uh, just just to, just to say here for one moment, I, I was struck by a survey I ran a few months ago, maybe a year ago, where I asked academics, would they uh, would they prioritize the goals of social justice over the principle of academic freedom, essentially mm. trying to get at this trade-off? At what point would academics in, in the university sacrifice the all-important principle of academic freedom, which is that you can research whatever you want, you can say whatever you want without fear of negative consequence, which is so important to higher education. I mean, that is ultimately what drives, you know, you, you could argue that is really what, what is at the heart of liberal society. Um, and, and to what extent would you be willing to sacrifice 
that in the pursuit of social justice. And we found about 60, 65% of academics were, were willing to say they would compromise on the principle of academic freedom in the pursuit of social justice. And yeah, and the other thing, the other thing that, that I found quite striking at the same time, you know, we asked, um, we asked academics in all of the elite institutions in the UK, the US, Canada and Australia, would you support the use of diversity statements when people are applying for jobs and research grants? And this is a new thing that's happening in universities. It, it, you may not have noticed it when you were at, at Oxford, but, but what happens is if you apply for a position or you apply for a research grant, you are now asked to submit a statement outlining your commitment and your philosophy around equality and diversity, right? So how yeah. will you promote equality and diversity in the workplace? Now, most people would say, you know, gee, what's the problem with that? I'm, you know, I'm all, I'm all for equality and diversity. What's the problem with that? You know, lots of academics would say that is a clearly designed ideological litmus test, which is which is really geared towards filtering through, uh, you know, job applicants, research grants, you know, rigging the system really in favor of people who adhere and promote the dominant orthodoxy on campus. And you don't need to be a critic of social justice ideology or you know, progressive politics, you don't need to be an ultra conservative or gender critical scholar or whatever to see that this is undermining and weakening the principle of academic freedom, yet sort of our institutions don't have a problem with it. So well, actually, you know, this is this is the future of academia. It's it's uh, it's verging on compelled speech at that point, if people feel that their, their, their jobs uh, depend upon making these proclamations that they may not otherwise wish to make. We had a similar thing. What was the university? I think it might have been St. Andrews. It was a Scottish university where they set a test for those wishing to matriculate. And you, you, as a student, you wouldn't be able to matriculate unless you answered your, your survey correctly. And I think some of the questions were about uh, whiteness and about white privilege and this kind of thing. So in other words, you, unless you had the right opinions, you couldn't get on the course. And at that point, it is into the realm of compelled speech. And I, I would put it to these academics that, that say online that all of the culture was a right-wing myth. They will be the ones uh, that whose opinions are the fashionable ones at the present that go along with the group think they, they they it's very easy to say that if you have nothing challenging to say you know i don't <laughs> i don't think it's they're, they're taking their own experience as reflective of the universities as a whole which is of course what so many of the new puritans do they have this this notion of lived experience they take the idea that their experience is is the is, is the way in which to measure reality and uh, of course it's not <laughs> But that's so that's where so much of the sort of, you know, the, the revolutionary aspects of this are coming from where whereby institutions now will often refer to um, workshops or or uh, committees that involve a very small number of members of staff or students who are reporting their lived experience. Yeah. And the institutions will then use that as a justification, for example, for uh, for decolonizing reading lists or for. Uh, renaming buildings or for pulling down historical statues and so the whole thing becomes a reinforcing cycle um, and it's again it's yeah. often a very small minority of activists you know who are who who are basically driving this uh, largely in alliance with you know administrators and people who are just trying to you know go to work and you know do what they need to do and then go home and they're not really in many cases you know they're good people driven by good intentions but they're not really sort of you know interrogating you know what is actually driving uh, a yeah. lot of this sort of stuff um but you write in the book as well you say in the religion of social justice we are facing a new kind of purity culture one which is intolerant of any attempt to question its core tenets and you talk in particular about um what, what you describe as the legitimization of bullying and you talk about the importance of thinkers like um, Herbert Marcuse, um, uh, you, and, 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 and who I also think has been often overlooked in this discussion. Everybody points at Foucault and language, yeah. and they never really dwell on Marcuse. But, but he is actually incredibly important to the debates that we're having today about free speech. And I just wanted to ask you to unpack that a little bit and this idea of you know, repressive tolerance and why Marcuse is so important. Yeah, I mean, his, his his essay or article on repressive tolerance does read like a blueprint for woke, woke activism. I suppose the reason he's not cite, cited very often is perhaps 
woke activists aren't particularly familiar with his work, but even if they're not, the ideas that he uh, he put forward have have seemingly uh, seized control. And and uh, you know a, a lot of what he says is I mean he's very explicit about the need to effectively take away uh, prevent uh, right leaning people from 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 having a platform, from speaking, from organising. Um, he says it ex explicitly, uh, and I, I mean I, I don't think actually many of the activists are all that familiar with Foucault either but what I'm trying to talk about in the book and trace them is a way in which their familiarity with the source material is irrelevant just as many sort of uh, very religious people aren't all that familiar with the foundational holy texts these people may not be uh, that familiar with the Frankfurt school or with with the French postmodernists but they have somehow imbibed uh, these these ideas uh, which have come about through what what people call this long march through the institutions which sounds terribly conspiratorial but it is just that these fashions sort of took took hold and uh, and they continued and they were perpetuated by the universities. I don't think it was a conspiracy. Uh, I think it's more to do with fashion. I think fashion explains an awful lot. Uh, I think I think it's fashion, but I think it's also just a lot of education polarization. I think it's a lot of institutions that rely a lot on university graduates. And yes. as those graduates have drifted left on cultural questions and have adopted this fashionable belief system those yes. institutions in turn have been shaped by that education based polarization and i don't you know it, it isn't a conspiracy it's just, i think it's just the it's a compositional change within the institutions and so when you get to a point like we are today where you know 90 percent of the house of commons are university graduates more than half of them went to the elite institutions 90 percent of british journalists have university degrees more than half went to elite institutions as the graduate yeah. class has kind of have kind of built this you know the this idea of a sort of diploma democracy political institutions that are now overwhelmingly dominated by elite graduates and have been largely reshaped around the interests of elite graduates these ideas have just become much more prominent within those institutions yeah i mean there, and there could be other reasons as well i suppose we're in the realm of speculation a little bit but you know there's a there's probably a good reason why so much of this came out of the humanities i mean when i was studying english literature as an undergraduate Foucault was basically deified and you know lots of people didn't really read him much but they read about him and they knew that the the uh, this idea that our reality is constructed through the language solely through language the words that we use were sort of just taken as a, a given and I certainly learned the trick of uh, you know peppering my essays with certain uh, postmodernist phrases and and uh, it, it's almost like a code it's, if you drop the right jargon you don't need to say anything of substance at all and you can you can come out with a first you know it, it, it's it's <laughs> i think it's it's also very appealing to the the moralizing element of human beings you know i mean the deconstructive approach to a text is effectively a kind of moral detective work where you take a book and you rather than sort of engaging with its artistry and its poeticism you instead try and uh, detect the wrong thing of the author you try and detect where uh, shakespeare has represented characters in a homophobic way or in a racist way and and you know these these approaches these moralistic sermonizing approaches were rewarded with high marks um so i no wonder you know if, if you take on board this this notion that, that that reality is constructed through language it's no wonder that today activists always talk about words being violent and about how certain discourses are are harmful to society, even the cancellation of the comedian Jimmy, Jerry Sadowitz in Edinburgh recently was described as harmful. His ideas and jokes were harmful, uh, almost as though words are like a toxin and they pollute and corrupt the masses. And all of this can be traced um, from, from, from these theories, I think. And one of the most influential books uh, that, I, that I read uh, in the aftermath of Trump's election was The Rise of Victimhood Culture by the sociologists um, Campbell and Manning. Uh, and, and they really sort of talked about, I think they were one of the first books to really kind of nail this idea of emotional safetyism and this yeah. idea that we are now really raising a generation of kids who, you know, sort of Gen Z, the Zoomers who were born after 1996 are, are now coming, coming into society and its institutions who have been sort of raised on the one hand by parents who... Uh, have themselves really been been influenced by by a lot of the ideological currents that we've been talking about have gone into you know universities and educational institutions schools as well that have become much more preoccupied with this notion of emotional harm and protecting students from 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 emotional harm 
And this has sort of created a a generation now that is really preoccupied uh, with microaggressions, safe spaces, trigger warnings, is very uncomfortable with speakers and um, organizations that might challenge their views. And, you know, this isn't just me speculating. The the Higher Education Policy Policy Institute just had a report last month which compared the, the attitudes of university students between 2016 and 2022. And it is a it's an incredibly sobering read because it finds essentially that over the last six years, which is not a long period of time, there has been a very sharp in- increase in support for um, you know, banning speakers, uh, yeah. and fi- firing academics and scholars who, who are deemed to have been offensive. Yeah. Uh, and, and even things like removing tabloid newspapers from campus because they are considered to be offensive to exactly. uh, women and so on and so on. So, I mean, this emotional safetyism is, is, is it, it's not a fringe thing. I mean, it's become the mainstream culture. Oh, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Did you see the tweet yesterday by a uh, podcast movement at PM22? This is this uh, a, a podcast, an event for podcasters where various major podcasters have a booth at this event. I think it's in Dallas. Um, and uh, there was a booth for the Daily Wire, a conservative American outlet. Um, and the podcast movement posted on Twitter, we owe you an apology. Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited the expo area near the Daily Wire booth, uh, and we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. So even even Ben Shapiro just turning up at this event (laughs) is described as harmful. So it's absolutely everywhere, this sort of, this necessity to to reinforce very rigid groupthink and conformity. not just within academia, but, but, but elsewhere as well. And, and that's, that's the other reason, I mean, to go back to your original question, that's the other reason I wanted to write the book. How is it that we have, that intolerance has become so normal now? Bigotry on a grand scale is what it is. It's a complete intolerance of any alternative differing viewpoints. And the, the, and the stakes are so high for those who do wish to raise questions and challenge. Well, I'm, and glad, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's my next question. We, and let, let's just pause on the, the people who want to put their heads above the parapet, like, like you've done you know, in a number of ways in recent years, and this book is another example of that. You have this great quote by Hayek in the book, which I want to read out because I, I hadn't come across it before. He said, it is not pleasant to have to argue against a superstition which is held most strongly by men and women who are often regarded as the best in our society and against a belief that has become almost the religion of our time and which has become the recognized mark of the good man. And I, I, I love that quote for lots of different reasons, not, not least because it really gets at the moral righteousness that comes with the, the new sort of Puritan class yeah. and the extent to which they, they really will unleash venom on those who are seen to challenge this belief system and 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 this notion that it is not pleasant, it is not nice, as I think yeah, both yeah. of us have discovered in different ways in recent years. That you know, in my case, I sort of violated the sacred value of of remaining in the European Union. I I was pretty comfortable with the outcome of the 2016 referendum. I didn't campaign for Brexit, but I just figured that was you know, what people wanted, and it was not a big deal for me, we, we'd leave the European Union. But yes. boy, did I underestimate the the backlash that would yeah. come my way from, from colleagues and, uh, you know, professionals and otherwise very intelligent people who ironically spend much of their time talking about tolerance and diversity <laughs> and fairness and so on. But, but this notion, I just want to press you on this notion that Hayek said, it is not pleasant to stand up and challenge this belief system. How has it been for you? And, and also what coping strategies do you actually use? I mean, that's a serious question. Yeah. How do you allow the backlash to, not to affect you? Or maybe it does. Well, you've, you've hit on something really important about all of this, I think, which is, which is that, you know, to, to, to return to Salem, just to make this point, I'm less interested in why the girls became hysterical and why they started seeing witches everywhere, if indeed they did. Um, because I'm, I'm not qualified to do that. There's been all sorts of theories as to why that is. Similarly, I'm not, I'm not that interested in the crazy activists online that scream their bizarre things out into the cyberspace. Again, why they're caught up in hysteria, I don't know. What I am interested in is why the elites 
uh, go along with it. And it's what you've just said. It's about intimidation. They're terrified. You know, when Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible, which is his dramatization of what happened in Salem, it was out of frustration that he could see major figures and politicians uh, effectively lying for their own self-preservation, going along, not, not necessarily believing in the hysteria, but going along with it nonetheless. There's also, the more I read about Salem, the more I realized that so many of the magistrates and the people involved didn't really believe it. Uh, they went along with it because they didn't want to be the next to be accused. It's absolutely terrifying. I mean, obviously the stakes were very high there. If you, if you challenge them and said, I'm not sure about this, such as Rebecca Nurse did, you end up with the hangman's noose around your neck. So, you know, that's why people, people were confessing to signing the devil's book, to meeting with devils at night in the forest. I mean, things that they know just didn't happen because they were trying to save their own lives. And today we have a similar situation in that, you know, politicians who struggle to define the word woman, you can see the fear in their eyes. It isn't that they don't know the answer. It's that they, they are intimidated. They're, and that this is something that it's really important to emphasize is that unless you've been the target of these activists' ire, you don't really understand the ferocity that they're capable Absolutely. of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Sheer cruelty and brutality of their, their way of life. And part of that, as I've said, is because I think that some of them think they're doing the right thing. I also think a lot of them will be uh, the kind of people who, who enjoy uh, sadistically attacking other people and having an excuse uh, for, for doing so. So... It's, the, it's that level of intimidation. And I, I think that's one of the reasons they're so furious about JK Rowling. You can't cancel someone who's that rich and successful. And also <laughs> she won't change the language that she uses and yeah. she won't change her opinions and, and go along with this simply because everyone is lying about her and making claims about her that are false and libeling her every day and threatening her every day. I mean, she's had enough death threats, she says, to paper the house. And that's a big house. You know, I, I think it's, it's really important to, to, well, I mean... I think we all need to be a lot braver. I think the reason why the, the, uh, the hysteria in Salem came to an end is because they reached a tipping point where too many people were saying, no, this is not real. And then it ends. And obviously, you know, 20 people were executed before that happened. So the people speak out earliest are the ones who are going to suffer the most. And I know that's true at the moment. And the people who like Kathleen Stock, you know, have, and Joe Phoenix and people of that kind have faced those horrible consequences. But by doing so, they've made it easier for people in the future to speak out. And so th this is why I draw this parallel with Salem, because I think Salem gives us the key of, of how to escape this, which is, which is to, to be braver, to take a stand, to say, no, the witches aren't real. Uh, your lived experience, or in Salem terms, the spectral evidence that you've su supplied, isn't uh, sufficient to see someone condemned. And, uh, and to stand up for people who are being bullied for what, they, what they've said or what they refuse to say as well, of course. And I think that's the way out. Um, as for me and as for whether I have any strategies uh, for it, well, I mean, I've always been rather fortunate insofar as I left my teaching job. Uh, I, I used to be a school teacher and uh, I left that job before all of this madness began. And um, I imagine if I was still a school teacher, I wouldn't be getting promoted, you know, because I, I wouldn't be able to keep silent about this stuff. I wouldn't be able to sit in an unconscious bias training session and not register my objection because we know from studies that they, they are ineffective and, and completely useless. Also, let's leave aside the, the fundamental principle that I don't believe your employer has any right to be probing through your head for your secret thoughts. So that's a different question, I suppose. But I would be making my displeasure known and I would refuse to uh, sign off an email with my pronouns and I would be doing all of that. So I and it's not that they would fire me or could fire me necessarily, but they could certainly make sure that I never get promoted and have a, a difficult time of it. And I, so I understand that, but I'm not in that position. Since I became a writer and comedian and I was earning my own money, and for so many years I didn't have a boss, uh, and now I do have a boss, but I'm working for a, a news channel, GB News, that, where I can still say exactly what I think. Um, so I'm fortunate insofar as I can't be cancelled, I guess, and I haven't been cancelled. Um, but 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 it's it's harder for, for for most people who are in a job you know i'm constantly contacted by people who say i, I wish i could say the things you say i wish i could yeah. speak out about this stuff and yeah, me too. they can't all be hoaxing me you know this is a, this is a widely felt anxiety well, the, the the flip side of that coin in my experience has has been the reaction of, of many of my colleagues who are often junior colleagues are not mm. have, are not yet uh, have not yet um, you know, 
become professor or um, ha have not yet got job security. And yes. I noticed this during the Noah Carl case in 2018, when yes. um, you know Noah was was essentially kicked out of Cambridge for really not doing anything wrong at all. Yes. Um, and the number of emails that I received after writing a piece in the Sunday Times, I just said, you know, this is outrageous. Um, everybody's lost the plot. Higher education has completely um, sort of is turning in on itself. And um, I was flooded with emails, both from junior researchers who really wanted to say something in Noah's defense, but felt they couldn't because yeah. that would be a mark forever on their CV or on their, on their character and reputation. But also, and I found this quite frustrating, many other senior professors who, you know, for understandable reasons, and I don't want to be too, too critical of them, but they just want to play the game. Yeah. Right? They want to play the game. They don't want to wake up in the morning, be hounded on social media. They want an easy life. And there's nothing wrong yeah. with that. Everybody wants an easy life. You know, they don't want, you know, the friends and relatives to say, well, you know, I see you're getting a lot of crap on Twitter. And, um, you know, they, they, they want to, to play the game. But, but, but again, they too said, you know, actually, I think it's outrageous. I wish I'd spoken up. I even, you know, I've even had colleagues since that case who were intimately involved in that case and said they wish they'd gone further in, in yes. defending Noah against the institution. And, I, and that brings me back to your point about Salem, right? Because I think today, the equivalent of the magistrates and the judges and so on are moderate liberals who need to be emboldened and given the confidence to stand up and say, this is crazy or yes, you know, absolutely. I'm not going to go along with this. And, you know, moderate liberals, if you look at the data, are two, three times bigger as a group than the woke radical progressive or, or the Puritans. But yet they are cowed by this very active, um, uh, small minority that, that also, as the evidence shows, more in common who you cite in your book, are overwhelmingly more likely to use social media to spread their political views. I mean, it's crazy when you look at how active uh, yeah. the sort of radical progressives are on Twitter. They're, you know, they're like five, six times more likely than the average voter to, to be on social media, to spread their views on social media and to use yeah. it as a tool to promote this worldview. So then their voice is so amplified that I think a lot of people look at it and think, wow, this must be a really big group. But actually yeah. it's about 12, 13% of the country. Exactly. And that's something that I think it's really worth reiterating that they are not the, the majority by a long way. And they're not, they're not the majority in any generation either. So to sort of simplistically claim that this is just older people failing to keep up with changing trends is, 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 is wrong and isn't backed up by the data. But, you know, I'm not, I'm with you. I'm not too hard on people who haven't spoken out because I get it. The activists are scary. They're few in number, but they have a hell of a lot of clout and a hell of a lot of power and they can really mobilize online to make your life an absolute misery. So I'm not, I understand, you know, part of me when I get those emails, like, oh, I wish I could speak out. Part of me is frustrated and I'm thinking, oh, why don't you then? You know. <laughs> Um, yeah. But at the same time, I, I get it on a human level. I get it. It's absolutely horrible to be the target of their ire, to be bombarded by them in this way, to be misrepresented and lied about. I mean, it's 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 it is a horrible feeling. But um, I can't help but think that ultimately uh, it will take people to you know you you don't want to be in the position where later on in life you regret, like you say that those people who said to you, why didn't I speak out in the Noel Carr case, you know. I would appeal to people in that way. And I would say, you know, ultimately, if you know that this is wrong, think about how you'll feel about this in later years. Think about your conscience. You know, it's, it's, think about what the, the you know, the magistrates at Salem, if they would have just spoken out, they could have saved lives. They all repented of it afterwards. You know, no, it was a, such a short lived hysteria. And later they all <laughs> felt that, knew that they'd done a terrible evil. Um, so don't allow yourself to be put in, into that position. Yeah, and I think if, um, you know, just reflecting on the last few years, personally, I think the more that the more you go through these storms, these, you know, kind of attempted cancellations, whatever you want to call them. Yes, I do think you you become a lot more resilient and you become oh, yeah. a lot more confident in your position. And I've been 
I don't know if this speaks to your experience, but I've been waiting for the arguments to turn up. I've been waiting for, you know, the arguments that show they're right to turn up. And when I've been pointing to things that challenge this worldview and saying, well, actually, you know, take the data that came out this year, the Department for Education, some remarkably great things happening uh, yeah. among, you know, young British Chinese, British Indian, British Afro-Caribbean kids doing remarkably well in a primary school, secondary school, going into elite universities, etc. And, you know, you're pointing this out and you realize in the responses that come back that actually they don't really have any arguments at that point. They're kind of like, you know, the, the, the curtain is pulled back and everybody realizes, yeah. you know, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. And, um, and so then, then it will become very personal. Then it's, you know, it's all by, it's all about guilt by association, or it's, it's, it's sort of a much more personal attempt to, to try and undermine, you know, you as an individual rather than, than the argument. And I think the argument slowly, but, but, but steadily, I do think actually the argument is being one against this, this worldview. And I know other, others are much more skeptical. They say, well, actually, you know, this is just the beginning of a cultural revolution but actually i'm not convinced if you take you know the media landscape as an example if you'd said to me five years ago that the british media landscape would look like it does today which is more diverse more channels more television programs more counter cultural views yeah. um if you'd said to me there's a there'd be a big ecosystem in place of think tanks and you know, charities and uh, activists who are, you know, really calling out a lot of a lot of this this nonsense. If you'd said to me there'd be new universities like in Austin, or there'd be, a, you know, new legislation with with attempts to to ensure that people like Kathleen Stock in the future cannot be sacked, cannot be harassed. You know, these are all things that I look at as as the beginnings of that broad pushback to this yeah. radical minority. And I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly becoming an optimist actually in the direction of travel. Are, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Um, I have good days and bad days on this. I don't, I don't know. And I'm also hopeless at predicting the future, but I've certainly noticed all of them, I think are fabulous, the things that you've mentioned there, but I've also noticed a heightened viciousness from the activists, almost like they're, they're cornered rats and they're, they're sensing that their time is limited. And they are lashing out with greater with greater rage. And you know, you, you only have to look at the reaction, the unhinged, hysterical reaction to GB News to see what I'm talking about. You know, months before GB News aired, you had activists saying it was a far right echo chamber, all of this stuff, uh, putting up pictures of presenters who weren't even on the channel, all sorts of just insane stuff. And when it did finally air, and it was none of those things, they still do it, and they still today do it. And they throw out, the, but the, diff, the thing is, people can just switch it on and watch it. And within five minutes, you're like, oh, this is just different people with different opinions uh, talking about stuff on an Ofcom regulated channel. Yeah. It's not, and and Michael know, Portillo. And, <laughs> and Michael Portillo. And it's like, you get these kind of, but their, their lives become ever more hysterical. I mean, recently, there's been a really common thing of some maniacs online talking about how we're funded by the Kremlin. You know, it's just... <laughs> When our funding is in the public domain, everyone knows that that's not true. But the the the, the these sort of brazen extreme uh, lies, these uh, complete because they're just used to being unmoored from reality, and 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 the idea of reality itself is is of no concern to them. But eventually, that's not going to work on the people that they're trying to persuade. You know, uh, eventually, uh, reality does bite, doesn't it? And that's why you have the closure of the Tavistock Centre. I mean, you know, ultimately, at at, at the end of the day the medicalization and sterilization of gay children wasn't going to be an easy sell. Um, so yeah, there are all sorts of all sorts of things and positive signs of things that are happening and the pushback that is happening. But I also yeah. see I also see the the anger and the determination to utterly destroy people who 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 resist as well. I mean they're they're getting worse and they will so I it, it I feel like it either goes their way or our way. Like I say in the book, I'm hoping that within a generation my book will be obsolete and people will read it and think what the hell why did you bother writing all this uh, about this crazy moment you know <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that's going to be the case because the alternative if they do win out if the new puritans get the society they want we'll be in the midst of authoritarianism and that's 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 the uh, horrible uh, proposition to contemplate and there are moments looking ahead uh where i could see quite a strong reaction i think if you look at for example, the possibility of 
Trump II in 2024 yeah. uh, for lots of reasons. I'm deeply apprehensive about that. Not not least, I think Trump is a you know narcissistic maniac who would be very detrimental to uh, American democracy. But I find myself also thinking I'm also concerned about how the Puritans would react to a second uh, well, presidency exactly. of Donald Trump. And, and so I find myself in this weird position where I spent a, a large part of my career really looking at, you know, the rise of, of national populism and thinking this is not great for, for representative liberal democracy. And now finding myself thinking, well, I'm also worried about the growing reaction to it because that is looking, you know, also dicey and confrontational and divisive and polarizing and I was struck by you know the work of, of people in the US like Zach Goldberg who has done some great work on um, the reaction of uh, of white graduate liberals to, to the President Trump um, era showing just how radical they've become on cultural issues David yeah. Rosado, who we've had on the this, this, this subcast before, David's done some great work looking at how the media landscape has been transformed since, since Trump's election. And you've seen this surge of interest in, in things like cultural appropriation, slavery, white privilege, whiteness, the mainstreaming of social justice vocabulary, basically. Yeah, um, exactly. And I just wonder, you know, where does that go? Uh, were we to have to go back into you know, the Trump box, what happens to that? Um, and that's where I get concerned about about the sort of the ongoing radicalization um, versus, you know, the burning out hypothesis, which which has been put forward that actually, you know, all of this stuff will just just burn itself out. Now, perhaps I'm convincing myself that I'm not as much of an optimist no, as, I I, think, as I was saying 10 minutes ago, but I think that, you know, that, that could be an interesting moment. I think you make, no, you make a very good point and I'm concerned as well. You know, it, it, the Trump presidency was rocket fuel to the culture warriors. Yeah. You know, they had something to react against. He was living yeah. the living proof of their thesis that US is undergirded by white supremacy. You know, they, they basically, first they, they advanced the proposition that anyone who voted for Trump was a white supremacist. And then when he won, they can take that as proof that America's full of white supremacists. So, you know, um, that's exactly, that's not helpful. But then a Biden administration that entirely supports this ideology isn't helpful either. It's almost like whichever way you go, uh, they can win. And that's why I'm very pessimistic. I'm also very concerned about the way, as so long as people understand the culture war as a battle between left and right, I think it can't be solved because it's not about left and right. And, you know, the, 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 the Tory government here has presided over the worst of it. They have the online safety bill which uses the language of social justice activists in terms yeah. of language being harmful you know so um the, you know they their the, the introduction of the gender recognition act and what they were doing with that uh, similarly uh, i we can vote out a tory government or a labor government we can't vote out uh the woke civil service we can't vote out the these these people who have dominated all of the quangos uh, the, we can't get rid of this ideology whichever way we, we vote so therefore it's absolutely not a left-right issue so that's the first thing we need to kind of get over um so whether i'm optimistic for the future or not i i think the the, the better way that this will be defeated will will be when it starts to eat itself because because i say in the book about how the social justice activists are a are effectively cannibals and they turn on each other i mean look at the way in which they ferociously turned on kate clanchy for a book that she published and her progressive credentials couldn't be more well established so um but the more they go after people in their own ranks the more people will wake up to the problems here and again sorry to go back to salem but when the girls started accusing local dignitaries people who were widely respected by the magistrates that's when it started to fall apart when the girls said they they accused the reverend samuel willard of witchcraft and he was the um the acting president of Harvard, right? And they, they, and the magistrates at that point said, no, you've made a mistake. You must be talking about Constable John Willard, who was, who's already in prison. Um, they, they, so they weren't prepared to go along with the hysteria once their own started getting attacked. You know, when um, the colony's governor, William Phipps, his wife was accused. Similarly, there were no prosecutions there. The magistrates just said, no, you, you've got that wrong. You know, so I think the more they, attack themselves for the slightest failure to uphold their impossible creed and their impossible standards of, of moral purity, um, 
they will alienate people within their own ranks. And I think that's going to be the way to defeat them rather than a kind of reactionary, take it to the other extreme uh, anti-woke movement um, that will have all of, uh, many of uh, similarly ugly properties, shall we say. So watch out, Justin Trudeau is the message. Uh, and uh, watch out, Owen Jones, uh, maybe would we'll be... Well, except they didn't go after Justin Trudeau, even though he spent so much time in Blackburn. <laughs> That's weird, isn't it? They elected him in again. So maybe I'm well, wrong about that. Later. I could have a whole other podcast on Justin Trudeau and the politics of Canada. <laughs> uh, I used to live in Canada. I know it intimately, and I, I right. sometimes find myself just, you know... Mind the mind boggles watching Canada from afar. Um, oh, Andrew, I'd like to. I just want to thank you for for giving up your time to to join us. I really want to urge everybody to check out the book, The New Puritans. Um, engage with it, even if you wildly disagree with everything that we've been saying. It's a it's a it's a book that is chronicling one of the most important shifts in politics today in the West, um, it, it should become compulsory reading. Uh, and it takes a conversation on uh, uh, much further than than a lot of what I've read on this topic. So I really strongly recommend it. Andrew, thanks for your time. Thanks, Matt. Good luck with everything that you're you're working on and, and, and with Free Speech Nation and uh, everything else that you're doing. And uh, I'd like to thank all of our subscribers, uh, our full subscribers for their support for making the platform possible uh, for sharing your thoughts for sending me emails for suggesting people that you'd like to hear from please do keep them coming in and for now we will say thank you and goodbye <laughs>